So there are actually a very, very small number of circumstances in which I believe it's, it's right to meddle with the trading system and to override it. The danger is if you're ever in a situation where you're spending too much time looking at what your system is doing and, and uh, following the, the financial news and all this kind of stuff, all these things feed into a, an environment in which you're, you're more likely to try and second guess the system and override it. That's why I, I don't sit at my computer all day watching it trade. I spend a lot of time setting it up so that, that it's fully automated and just reports to me when thing, things look like they might be going wrong. In every case, the accuracy of experts was matched or exceeded by a simple algorithm. Why are experts inferior to algorithms? One reason is that experts try to be clever, think outside the box, and consider complex combinations of features in making their predictions. Complexity may work in the odd case, but more often than not, it reduces validity. This is a quote from Daniel Kahneman's book, Think Fast and Slow, and it's very relevant to the conversation you're about to listen to on today's show. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 89. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we find out who's on today's show, I want to mention that today's podcast is brought to you by Eurex. And in today's conversation, I actually learn about a brand new contract from my guest that Eurex have just launched, which my guest finds to be very useful for many investors and which you can find out much more about by visiting the Eurex website. Today I'm talking to Robert Carver, who's both an author and a trader, and who spent a good chunk of his career at one of the biggest European systematic trading firms, namely AHL, before leaving in 2013 to write his newly released book. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersonplug.com website and sign up to receive access to all of them. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Rob, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me, Niels. My pleasure. Now, Rob, you're a little bit different from my usual guests, which have been hedge fund managers or CTAs running their own firms and strategies. Today, you're an author and you trade your own money, having left the bossing world of, of the city of London behind. But in your new book, 
systematic trading, a unique new method of designing trading and investment systems. I think you bring such an important perspective on the systematic trading world and you break down the components in such an easy to read way that I wanted to make an exception uh, to my usual lineup and bring you on for an in-depth conversation on a number of topics relating to this. And for me, it's a little bit funny because when I look back at all the podcast interviews that I've done so far, it's precisely one year ago I made the same exception for Katie Kaminsky, who had also just published a great book on the world of trend following. So for full disclosure, I have tried to read all of the 300 pages, but I may have skipped a few in order to make today's deadline. But from what I've read, I really recommend anyone interested in the subject to grab a copy of it or perhaps two since Christmas is coming up. And for those who think I'm getting paid to say this, you're wrong. This is purely a recommendation based on my assessment of the quality of the book. Now, many people in the alternative investment industry are very familiar with some of your previous employers, in particular AHL, which has been an institution in the CTA space for many decades. But before we jump into your background, I just have a simple question that I try to ask all of my guests in order to appreciate the different answers that there is to this question. It basically goes something like, when you meet people that don't know you and they ask what you do, how do you respond? How do you explain what you do? Um, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I, I normally say that either that I'm a writer or that I'm an independent um, trader depending on who I'm talking to and which answer I think will get the best response. <laughs> but I, I basically do both of those things. I mean, I, the nice thing about trading systematically is if done properly, once you've actually designed your system, it takes up very little time. Sure. Uh, and that leaves you more time for, for thinking and writing, which is what I actually uh, enjoy doing more. So Fantastic. that's what I would describe myself as. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, at this stage, I would normally move on to my usual questions, but I want to do something a little bit different today since you have just published your book. And I can't think of a better way to kick things off than by setting the scene and you reading a little bit of, you know, the book in order for people to get a sense of your writing style, which I very much enjoyed. So I, I would kindly ask you maybe to read a little bit of the preface and then a little bit of the introduction to, to the book, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. I'm very bad at making financial decisions. Like most people, I find it difficult to manage my investments without becoming emotional and behaving irrationally. But this is deeply irritating, as I consider myself to be very knowledgeable about finance. I've voraciously read the academic literature, done my own detailed research, spent 20 years investing my own money, and nearly a decade managing funds for large institutions. So, in theory, I know what I'm doing. In practice, when faced with a decision to buy or sell a stock, things go wrong. Fear and greed wash through my mind, clouding my judgment. Even if I've spent weeks researching a company, it's still hard to click the trade button on my broker's website. I have to stop myself buying or selling on a whim, based on nothing more than random newspaper articles or an anonymous blogger's opinion. But then, like you, I'm only human. Fortunately, there is a solution. The answer is to fully, or partly, systematise your financial decision-making. Creating a trading system removes the emotion 
and makes it easier to commit to a consistent strategy. I spent many years managing a large portfolio of trading strategies for a systematic hedge fund. Unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to develop and trade systems to look after my personal portfolio, but after leaving the industry, I've been able to make my own trading process entirely systematic, resulting in significantly better performance. Uh, and I'll read from the introduction. Sure. It was the 23rd of January, 2009, and I was in my London office. Although I had a desk overlooking the Thames, I was usually too busy to appreciate the view. My day job was managing a portfolio of systematic trading strategies for a large hedge fund, but right now I was focusing on my own bank balance. Data was about to be released, indicating how the UK economy had performed in the last three months of 2008. It would be bad news, the official confirmation that we were in recession, but nobody knew how bad. This didn't mean extra work for me, however, since a bank of computers would adjust our clients' portfolios automatically when the news arrived. So I decided to devote some rare free time to trade my own money. With a stressful full-time job, I was not a particularly active trader, but very occasionally an opportunity came up that was too good to miss. This was one of them. In my research, I found that historically, when people's fears were confirmed by terrible economic numbers, was often the best time to buy, and this was potentially the worst news I'd seen in my lifetime. Careful analysis showed that the banks, hardest hit by the financial crisis, should rebound the most if things improved. I was particularly attracted to Barclays. I traded for their investment bank a few years before, and their balance sheet was in relatively good condition but I also looked at investing in the other major UK banks. In all, I was prepared to risk 10% of my portfolio on four banking stocks. Then the figures came out. They were worse than expected, with GDP falling by 1.5%. Barclays dropped 15% almost immediately, taking it to the lowest level I had ever seen. I waited for the market to stabilise and prepare to trade. Then I hesitated. Everything had happened as expected. I should go ahead and buy. But what if this was wrong? What if the financial industry really was imploding, as everyone else seemed to think? Panicking, I quickly changed my orders, knocking a zero off each one, so that only 1% of my portfolio was at risk. It was one of the biggest mistakes of my investing career. Thanks very much, Rob. It's funny when you read that, you, 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 it, it really does take you back to that time of 2009, which was a, a scary time to be in, uh, in the investment world. Now, um, this was, of course, just a little bit of a background. Uh, and I wanted to ask you perhaps to take us a little bit further back in your own career to sort of appreciate and understand how you came about ending up where you are today so if you don't mind you know take us take us uh, take us back even to you know when you're a kid growing up what were your <laughs> interests were, you know were you always curious about things uh, give us a little bit of color if you don't mind sure um i think it's fair to say that um, from quite a young age i was fascinated with computers um and um I, i'm 41 years old so um i got i got a computer when i was seven um, so I, I was probably one of the first generation to have access to a personal computer from quite a young age. Sure. 
Um, and uh, this interest had developed to the point where uh, I went to university to study computer science, mm-hmm. which in my naiv- naivety I'd assume would, would mean that I would be taught um, how to program computer games, which at the time I think was the career that all uh, nerdy boys of my my, <laughs> my friends wanted to do. Sure. Um, um, unfortunately, the, the course was very dry and scientific and had too much um, theoretical mathematics, so uh, I, I didn't complete that course. I spent a few years um, working in a completely unrelated industry um, and then, quite by accident, came across a copy of uh, Michael Lewis's famous book, Liar's <laughs> Poker, Yeah, sure. Uh, in a bookshop. And uh, I, I read the book and... The interesting thing is that Michael Lewis wrote this book to to sort of scare people off from working in finance. But I think it had the opposite effect. Yeah. And um, I know so many people who said, "Yeah, I read Elias Poker and it sounded amazing." And uh, you know, I, I want to uh, I want to get into that world and do that. Yeah, it was a great book. So then I became interested in economics and ended up studying um, economics at uh, a university and going back. And this time I managed to complete my course. So obviously I'd found the right the right thing. Um, I then went to work for Barclays Capital, an investment bank, mm-hmm. and I spent a couple of years with them trading um, exotic interest rate options, um, which was uh, an experience, um, but uh, not one I would want to repeat. <laughs> okay. I think it's fair to say that I'm not really cut out for the, the cut and thrust of a, of a bank trading floor. What time period are we talking about now? Uh, um, this was in the, the early 2000s. Okay, so, okay. Um, after the dot-com boom, okay. before things got crazy again. I think um, also from reading that, that section of my book, you'll appreciate that actually, I'm not emotionally cut out for making investment decisions. Sure. Um, <laughs> and I actually believe that very few people are, Yeah. Um, which is why I think systematic trading is, is the way to go. I'm sure we'll discuss that some sure, more. Sure, sure. Anyway, after that rather traumatic experience, uh, I spent a couple of years... Um, doing my master's degree part-time mm-hmm. um, whilst also working for a, uh, an economic uh, think tank, which was a, a more cerebral activity <laughs> and a, a bit of a rest from uh, a frantic trading uh, world. Sure. And then again, quite by chance, to, to get ahead in life, you have to have a lot of luck. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I've been very lucky. Quite by chance, I saw an advert in the Financial Times um, f- for AHL. Okay. Um, and I knew of AHL because I'd actually worked for them as a summer intern a few years beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were looking for someone who had both um, a financial markets background, but also uh, an economics background, and also um, an interest in computer programming. <laughs> and I sat there thinking, this advert has been written for me. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> there can't be many of those people around. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I applied for the job and got through the, the rather... Um, tough interview process sure. um, and uh, I got the job Fantastic So um, you joined AHL when was that? Before uh, the crisis? So I, joined, or? I did, yeah, I joined in 2006 Okay So um, a, a very different world from the one we live in now Yeah. and uh, I also feel um, not sure if luck's the right word but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's been an excellent education having spent the, the period from, from 2006 to 2013 when I left AHL. Yeah. Um, probably, you know, the most exciting period uh, to work in the financial markets. Um, sure. it, obviously, the excitement was both good and bad. Mm. But, uh, but the learning was good. 
the learning was excellent. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, of course, you've been very busy writing a book and, uh, and, and that, you know, I can only imagine how much effort and time that takes. But when you are not trading, when you're not writing, what, what do you like to do nowadays that sort of takes you, your mind off uh, those two things? Um, I, I enjoy do quite a lot of cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to stop working um, in a full-time capacity with the, the two-hour daily commute that, that right. involved was also to spend more time with my young family. Sure. So sure. Th those are my other interests. And in the summer, I also enjoy doing a bit of sailing. Excellent. Um, so uh, I, I, full disclosure, I was actually a world champion in one particular sailing class when I was younger. So, uh, wow, there we are. That you uh, are my first world champion on the show. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that was a long time ago. And uh, I think, again, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as I used to be. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Excellent, Rob. Now, you've written a book about systematic trading, which normally involves a lot of math and equations in the real world. But you've managed to write a book with very little math being used. So why was this important to you to do it that way? The the credit for this really has to go to my publisher. Okay. Um, when I, I sent the first draft of my first chapter to my publisher and he came back saying, um, this is great, but by the third sentence, you lost me. <laughs> If you want to write a book that only, uh, you know, perhaps a few thousand people in the world can understand, mm. um, then that's fine. You know, we, we're prepared to do that. Obviously, you know, the, the, the kind of, there's the kind of an equation that uh, publishers use to do with size of audience, cost of book, length sure. of book, publication costs, and that all these things kind of get factored in together. Um, so at one extreme, you'd have a, you know, a highly specialized um, option pricing book that, that might sell, in, you know, in a good day, might sell a thousand copies over its whole lifetime. Yeah. That'll cost you, you know, three figures to buy. Sure. And at the other end, you might have um, investing for dummies, um, which is probably going to be ten dollars and um, could could well sell hundreds of thousands or even millions of copies. Sure. Um, so he said, you have to think about whereabouts in the spectrum you want to pitch your book, and um, I very much felt that I wanted to um, speak to as, as large an audience as possible. Mm. Um, but um, so then, but then the publisher kind <laughs> of came back again and said. You know, you, you you're going to struggle, I think, to to bring your ideas down to the level where anyone on the street could understand them. So, let's try and pitch it somewhere in the middle, and and that's where I've I've tried to do it. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how successful I've been because um, there's, there's a couple of reviews on Amazon.com. One says um, this is the first book you should buy when thinking about systematic trading, which another one says. Um, this you should probably read at least 10 other books before opening this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> opinion differs as to whether it, it you know, it's it's um, it's as straightforward as you say. But I certainly did try and make it as accessible as I could and, and incorporate maths only when I felt it was absolutely necessary. I think you did a great job. And by the way, you know, having also put myself into the sort of the public uh, light with this podcast, uh, you know. Uh, comments and opinions and reviews they they are what they are and completely uncontrollable and and whatever mm -hmm. people whatever ha people had in their mind when they wrote them uh, you know that's how it comes out so i 
I, I would focus on the on the good ones, even though you can have a hundred good ones and one bad one, and it's the one bad one you focus on, isn't it? It's uh, well, that's true. But in, in fairness, both of those reviews were good reviews. Sure. Um, it's just that the, they, they disagreed about how accessible the book was. But, sure. Um, I, I'm going to judge take that as a kind of sampling error issue and. Uh, <laughs> assume that, that on average i'm somewhere in the middle which is something i'm comfortable with so. yeah no it's a great book absolutely now i want to start sort of digging into the book a little bit and and in the beginning you you start out by defining three types of investors namely the asset allocating investor the semi-automatic trader and the staunch systems trader i want you to tell me a little bit about each of them and why it's important to define them but i just want to be completely uh, you know, open here and say, I actually, I'm not English by background, so I didn't know what the word staunch meant. And so <laughs> I, I looked it up and I'm, there may be other people on, on the show today, you know, listening and who have no idea. And so it comes out as saying very loyal and committed in attitude, you know, and it has all of these things. So, so now at least I, I learned something new very early on in the book, which is staunch means that you are very committed to your, to your strategy. So anyway, that was a digression here. Let's go back and, and, and you explain a little bit about the three types of investors as you see them. Okay, so um, again, in, in the interest of making the book more accessible, I didn't want the book to be read by people who just purely wanted to to do what would normally thought of a systematic trading. In other words, you, know, you have some rules that look at um, normally technical price patterns and then in, in a completely quantitative way, you know, decide what positions you, sh- you should have as a result of of looking at those prices and then make the trades often automatically. Um, so that that's what a staunch systems trader is. It's someone who ha- has an end-to-end process um, with you know, trading rules at the beginning that are completely systematic and then a position management framework that translates those into positions and trades and does all the risk management, which again is completely systematic. And then the trading at the end it can be automated, but the point is that you know you follow those trades religiously and you, you never deviate from from them. So it's a system that that could be completely automated. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's quite a narrow set of people, um, and not everyone um, is in a, um, a setup where or a kind of place themselves where they're comfortable with that. And it depends on whether you're comfortable with the idea that a relatively simple, hopefully set of trading rules can can actually predict what will happen to prices of financial markets. Mm. Um, now, not everyone signs up to that. Um, and I, I kind of identified two other groups of people who are out there. The first are people who think that, that humans are better than computers at predicting price movements. Um, and to be more specific, they think that they personally are better at predicting um, price movements than, than simple rules are. And this is what I described as the the semi-automatic trader. Okay. So the idea behind the semi-automatic trader is someone who still wants the freedom to say, I think that that um, Apple is a good buy, but I should be short Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but who then wants to take that opinion and put it into a, a systematic position management framework um, that will then decide how big their position should be you know when what size their stops should be you know when they should open positions when they should close positions how many positions they should have open how you know how to manage holistically the risk of that um, because i i believe that the if you have a good position management framework in place then 
how good your your um, your ability to forecast or how good your systematic trading rules are if you're the first kind of investor is much less important. Right. Um, to the extent that you can actually run simulations with completely random um, entries. So you, you basically simulate a trader who is no, no better than flipping a coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you then feed that into a position management risk framework that's set up correctly, that, that guy will still make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because in the past we've seen trends in markets and if, if you're setting up a system where you've got fixed stop losses, um, then they will naturally tend to pick up on on trends. Um, but it, it's it's still an interesting finding. And if you then add in trading rules that, that do a, a, good, a good job of predicting where the market's going to go, that does add performance to your system, but not as much as you might expect. Sure. Um, so that's the second kind of person. Now, the third kind of person is, is a very miserable, uh, cynical person who <laughs> thinks that no one can predict what will happen to to prices in financial markets. Um, and I call them the asset allocating investor um, because a, a kind of long-term um, buy and hold mentality um, is we often say, well, you, you can't pick stocks. You know, you, the best portfolio is to, to buy a, a selection of ETFs that give you exposure to different asset classes. Mm. Um, and then you, you basically say, you know what, I, I've got no idea what these things are going to do. I'm just going to buy all of them. Um, so that that's a perfectly valid point of view, and I run part of my own portfolio on that basis. Sure. Um, but then again, I still think there's value in in using a, a position management framework to say, well, that's fine, but you know, how should you account for the different risks of the different assets you're buying? How should you account for the correlations? Um, you know, how should you um, trade that portfolio? How should you rebalance that portfolio? Given you've got a set of costs. So the challenge for me was to create um, what I call the framework, which is the sort of thing that in the middle between either a trading rule or a, a qualitative opinion or a, a stubborn, you know, buy and hold mentality. Um, and then that, that takes all of those opinions and, and kind of processes them in the same way and produces a set of positions. Mm. Uh, and that's what I, I've tried to do. Sure. No, absolutely. Thanks for doing that. Now, Rob, many people in sort of the money management business are very focused on explaining how they do what they do in order to convince investors to let them manage part of their money. But in my opinion, a more important question is why. So let me ask you why you should start a systematic trading strategy today. Because most people are not as good at trading as they think they are. (laughs) <laughs> that that's pretty much it. I mean, I talk a lot in my book about um, what behavioural um, finance people and, and psychologists call cognitive biases. Mm. So essentially, you know, our brains are kind of wired in a way that made sense when we were, you know, wandering across the plains of Africa a, a few hundred thousand years ago, and, and trying to hunt um, whatever we were hunting then. Um, when you're trying to make decisions based on complex information. Um, those emotional biases that come through that mean you end up often doing the wrong thing. Now, I know with myself that this is true, and with the, the little Barclays anecdote that I read out to you, sure. I could read out many, many more of those <laughs> bad decisions that I've made due to emotional problems. Um, and I believe these affect nearly all people. Mm. Um, I think the you know, and the biggest bias of all is, is overconfidence. People think that they are much better than they, they are, and people think they are much better than average than, than they are. 
um, and only someone who, who thought that they were better, whatever that means, um, at trading than, than anyone else would, would actually actively trade the financial markets. Um, and, you know, all the people who are actively trading the markets can't all be right. Um, there must be some of them who are below average. And, sure. Um, I, I believe that if you use a system with relatively simple rules, um, you, you can actually over, overcome these biases and, and, uh, and even exploit the biases that other people have. Mm. Now, slightly question about sort of uh, because I mean we always have to sort of look look at ourselves and and, and in in what we do and and early on in your book you 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 explain why people should be skeptical about trading systems that you can buy off the shelf or books that you can buy or blog posts that you can you can read and and we all know that there's a a lot of that out there but. Can you maybe explain why you think your book is different? <laughs> <laughs> Probably because I spend most of my book explaining how bad I am at trading <laughs> okay. and how and how you should be very, you know, for example, I say a lot, you know, you, you really shouldn't expect a sharp ratio of more than, well, the absolute maximum you should expect is one. Right. Um, and um, And actually for other people, you should expect a lot less. And actually, you you know you should you should do your kind of position sizing as if your sharp ratio was half mm-hmm. what you expected. Um, and in contrast, you know you if you're trying to sell a trading system, mm. it, the natural human instinct is is probably to do some kind of back test mm. and fit this thing until you have a sharp ratio that that looks attractive mm. and may you know is unlikely to be realizable in real life because of course you you've overfitted to get it. Yeah. Um, but it's very hard. And I have sympathy for people who are in this marketplace. Sure. And I'm not saying they're bad people, they're evil people who are out to scam everybody. <laughs> um, but but it's like being in a, in a market where you're selling cars to people. And the people who are buying your cars have no way of knowing um, how how good the car is. They have no way of know, verifying, for example, what, what the top speed of the car is. Sure. And you have to say, oh, my car can go 250 miles an hour. Because another guy is saying, oh, my car can do 200 miles an hour. Mm. And... When you know people then buy the car and they drive it, and it's a trading system, so of course the returns you get are, are random to an extent. And the, the car then only does fifty miles an hour or crashes, and and they can't really complain because of course, um, you know that that's the way these things work. Um, mm. So I think um, any anything you're reading, you have to ask yourself, why is the author presenting me this information, and mm. why what what's their motivation for doing it? Um, I mean, my motivation for writing my book was was obviously to sell <laughs> to sell books. Sure, but, of course. But that's... from a pure economic perspective, um, writing a, a book and, and selling it um, with and getting a percentage royalty, sure. um, you, you know, in terms of hourly wage, I'd have to sell quite a lot of copies just <laughs> to get to the point where I'd, I'd be getting the same as I would working in McDonald's. Sure. Um, for writing, so um, I am genuinely interested in in educating people and trying trying to explain to them. Uh, that they need to be more realistic sure. and that's a completely different marketplace from where you're trying to compete with people who are trying to make the most outlandish claims to stand out from the the pack of people making similar outlandish claims no i agree with that completely and i think it is evident from 
from reading your book that that is the uh, the fundamental uh, motivation now you 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 touch already upon the point about sort of the the flawed human brain um uh, in 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 uh, in your book and you end up talking a little bit about sort of the the temptation of taking profits early and letting our losses run that's really how we as human beings are are, are wired Tell me a little bit more about that and, and, and what it really means when it comes to trading, if you get this balance <laughs> the, the, the wrong way around, so to speak, and, and what you found when you, when you test these kind of human behaviors, so to, if I could call it that. So the, the natural human instinct, um, when you see a position rise a little bit in price that you, you're long, is to say, um, is to want to take a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes down to um, essentially that, that kind of strong feeling that you want to kind of lock that in. Um, and the reason you want to lock that in is you want to prove that you're right. Mm. It's the overwhelming human emotion to, to, to prove that, that you're doing the right thing. It's called confirmation bias uh, mm-hmm. in the literature. Um, now, when, when the stock's falling, if you um, sell at a loss, um, then you're going to be proving that you're wrong. And nobody wants to do that. Sure. So what you actually then want to do is hang on to that position, hope it goes up in value. And as it keeps falling, of course, you have the same conversation with yourself and, until you're, you're forced to sell, um, perhaps because, um, you know, you've run out of money. Sure. Um, so the, it, it's really about the way the human brain is treating um, lot, realize, unrealized losses and unrealized losses differently. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about them differently, even though they're exactly the same thing. Um, and... Uh, you know this this kind of mindset that it, it's it's not a profit until you've you've sold it and it's not a it's not a loss until you've you know taken the loss sure. it's, it's completely wrong you it's very easy to think about um sort of pattern of price where it would actually make sense to buy on a small profit mm-hmm. um, and that would be if a market was trading in a small range sure now the problem is that most of the time markets don't do that they they trend mm-hmm. um now this isn't the time for the kind of theological argument about whether sure. trend following is a, a good thing or a bad thing. But certainly in the past, um, and people like, um, you know, uh, Winton have done tests over hundreds of years of data where it's available. Uh, markets have in the past exhibited a behavior where they're trending. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if markets are going to trend and this the behavior where you're going to sell at a small profit and, you know, cut um, only when you've got a huge loss is exactly the wrong thing to do. You should do exactly the opposite of that, Sure. which is what a trend-following system will do. So this is a really good example of where there's a human bias um, in our brains creates exactly the wrong kind of behavior. And you can then write a really simple rule that not only corrects for that bias, but will actually exploit it. Mm-hmm. And if other people are doing are doing this, then, that, you know, this trend-following system will effectively be taking money money off them sure 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 now of course it it kind of goes into the debate there's also been about you know you know different kind of strategies you know convergent strategies versus divergent strategies we know trend following is a divergent strategy uh, then you have a lot of relative value strategies on the convergent side and and i guess uh I mean, I guess in, in in you know part of your conclusion is, of course, that you should have a little bit of everything, and that's that's probably true. Uh, but when you did your test, I mean, from from memory, you you did a test with two, these two different rules on 
31 futures contracts. What 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 did you find in 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 that? And if you don't remember, I I, I have to find <laughs> I have the finding in front of me. Okay. Um, well, I, I did I did find that um, I think it was 26 out of 31 markets or 27. Sure. 27 out of 31 markets. Um, a very simple uh, rule which took losses early and let profits run. Yeah. So it wasn't actually a kind of classical trend following rule. It was something much simpler than that. Sure. Um, did better in, in 27 out of 31 markets. But, you know, that's not a huge surprise because, you know, fir- firms that have been trend following futures have been profitable for, for many decades. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a big surprise. But um, as you say, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that trend following is the only way to trade. Exactly. It's just sure. that this is a really nice example of where a human bias um, produces a, a behavior in the market, which can be exploited by a simple trading rule. Sure. And, and speaking, there are, there are yeah. others on the diver, you know, on the convergent side as well. Yeah. 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 No. No. True. Um, and actually, uh, you, you use the phrase "simple trading rules." That there are two things you kind of highlight also early on in the book, and that's you know the importance of having simple trading rules, but also the importance of sticking to a plan. Uh, tell me why this is crucial in 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 your opinion. Well, if you're not sticking to a plan, then you aren't really trading systematically. Um, the the whole point of, of having a system, whether it be you know the full on what I call the staunch system trader, where you're running with um, systematic trading rules and a position management framework, mm-hmm. or the the more qualitative um, semi-automatic, where you're you're making your own forecasts, but then putting them kind of binding yourself into this systematic framework to actually trade and manage those positions. The the whole point of that is that you you gain the benefits that you can get from doing that um which you know you're going to lose if you if you start meddling with your system and, and making changes um and uh you know this is something that, that everyone does from the the kind of the, the guy who's a retail trader mm. who, who's using an off-the-shelf charting package and is looking at the, the signals that are coming off it and saying well i don't really like that signal <laughs> i'll ignore that one i'll do this one i won't do that one but even in uh, large institutions like ahl and I'm not uh, criticizing them specifically because I, I, I know it happens in, in all institutions um, that trade systematically. You still have debates about whether you should override the system or cut the system's risk because of something that's going on in the world. Mm. Now, the key point, of course, is if you've got a purely systematic trading system that you've backtested, um, in the backtest, all kinds of stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one was was there in the back test to to override it. The system just ran and and, and did what it did. Mm-hmm. And assuming you were comfortable with the back test and comfortable with its behaviour um, and what it, what trading it was doing in the back test, you, then you should really be comfortable with letting that thing run now without interfering with it, because that's exactly what happened in the back test. Mm-hmm. So there are actually a very very small number of circumstances in which I believe it's it's right to um, to meddle with the trading system and to override it. And uh, unfortunately, this is something that comes about with, with long experience. Um, and I think the, the danger is if you're ever in a situation where you're spending too much time looking at what your system is doing um, and, and uh, following the, the financial news and all this kind of stuff, all these things feed into a an environment in which you're you're more likely to try and second guess the system and override it. That's why I I don't sit at my computer all day watching it trade. 
I spend a lot of time setting it up so that, that it's fully automated and just reports to me when thing, things look like they might be going wrong. Sure. But in an institutional setting, you know, you, you, it's much harder when you're, you're trading with other people's money because you have this fiduciary duty um, to, to look after their money, and, and as you know yourself. Sure. Um, and uh, if, if something happens and you don't override the system, then there's always that question of whether that was the right thing to do. So it's it's a culture in which it's much harder to to stick exactly to what the system's doing. Sure. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you and I are talking, you know, in, in, in November of 2015. And actually, I would say the, the things you just touched upon is very real right now in the debate of, of investors, uh, which obviously I spend a lot of time uh, talking to because people are worried that the coming changes in interest rate environment meaning we've gone from a from a bear market in bonds to a you know at some sorry from a bull market in bonds to to a, a bear market at some point when the interest rate cycle turns which of course we know the US central bank has alluded to now a few times this year already and at some point it probably will come and there is definitely fear out there that all of these track records that we have been able to produce and can document and show, they're not going to be worth a lot when <laughs> when interest rates suddenly start going up because not many CTAs have, uh, in this case, CTAs have traded through a, a rising interest rate environment. And so there is this fear that, oh, it's going to stop working and, and, and it's mm-hmm. now. So, and of course, there is a point to it because most testing will have been done on data for the last three years, 30 years, three decades. Um, not a lot of people and, and not, a, not a lot of data is available going further back. Um, I want to I want to I want to sort of talk about something related to this in a second. But I just want to hear your initial reaction uh, to 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 this kind of um, um, concern that investors clearly have. So my last job at AHL was managing the, the fixed income portfolio. Okay, so you're um, well so, positioned to uh, so answer I this. I spent an awful lot of time thinking about exactly this problem. Okay. And I, I came to a, a number of conclusions. The first conclusion is people often forget that what makes um, – we, we're not actually – we say, oh, we're looking at prices and we assume that if a, a bond price falls that we're going to lose money. But actually what we're exposed to is the total return. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're owning bonds, um, then you, your total return is going to come. Actually, this applies to all futures, but it's going to come from both the the movement in the spot price, and also any any carry or roll down that, that you're getting. Mm-hmm. And the carry or roll down essentially is is sort of telling you um, what the market expects will happen to the spot price over the the period, well, whatever period it is. So what that means in practice, if you're in an environment where interest rates are very low but are expected to go up, then the interest rate curve, the yield curve, will be quite steeply upward sloping. Mm-hmm. And that means that the carry you'd get on owning bonds um, further out in the maturity space will be relatively high. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, if the, mark, if the interest rate moves in the way that the, the, the forward price is expected will move, you won't actually make or lose any money. It's only if the, the rates change unexpectedly. So if they, if they rise too early or too fast, that, that you'll lose money. So there's, that's the first thing to say, I mean, is that people kind of, I think a lot of people miss that. We did a lot of kind of simulations and tests uh, looking at different um, you know, interest rate environments. And we came to the conclusion that, that you know, 
there, there wasn't as much of a problem as you might think. Sure. The second thing is is diversify. Mm. Diversification. If, if you're running a CTA and, and 40% of your assets are in US bond futures, then you're some kind of crazy guy, right? Sure. <laughs> and this this is true, you know, regardless of what you think Janet Yellen is going to do. Mm. You know, you should have a diversified portfolio. So, um, you know, probably I look at my own portfolio, perhaps 20 to 25% is in, is in bond futures. Sure. Um, and if it was more than 30%, I'd be sort of thinking, well, that seems a bit high. Regardless of what I think is going to happen to interest rates, it just seems quite high given all the all the asset classes that are out there in, in the CTA space. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, you know, why, why have you got so much money just, just in one country? Of course, all bond prices will react to what happens in the US, but the, the what happens in the US will be the most significant um, thing. So, you know, if you've got a, a reasonably diversified portfolio, then your exposure to anything unexpected happening in the US should be relatively small. The third thing to say is, you know, we... I, we were having this debate um, for the best part of three years um, before I left AHL, sure. and it's now 2015. So this is a debate we've been having for five years. Yeah. And if you'd done if you'd done any kind of meddling in that period, like reducing your exposure to fixed income, you would have been hurt. Sure. Because um, being long fixed income and also trend following fixed income has been one of the the, the, the greatest trades over the last five years. So. Sure. For example, last year um, was an excellent year for CTAs, and uh, most of them made most of their money in bonds. Actually, mostly in European bonds. But um, you know, so um, if you if you kind of cut your exposure in bonds too much, um, to to you know to say just ten percent, you'd have seriously missed a lot of that return. Yeah. So my my message really is. Don't panic. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> um, I, yeah. Plus, I, yeah. I mean, if, if you, you you can go back to um, probably the last time we had an interest rate rise that kind of panicked the markets in in the similar way it was nineteen ninety four, when resource was when you know for example Orange County happened and a lot of people got got really got caught short. So, you know, you can kind of go back and look at CTAs who were trading back then and um, or look at back tests and simulations. You know, in as much as they can be trusted and, and look at what happened then. Um, so it's not like there isn't any data at all, but um, and you'll see losses, of course, but they, they shouldn't be too large as long as you you know haven't exposed yourself too much to one asset class in one country. Sure, and and and, and the other thing I would I would add to that I think all your points are are, are very good, and and of course uh, one can add one more, and that is of course that. Uh, Systematic traders today can be, you know, short the bonds as easy as they can be long. So, yeah. so, so there is no, there's no, there should be no bias there. But um, you know what, what is interesting to me is that there are a few, uh, maybe a handful of of these managers who were around in the last interest rate sort of hiking cycle. So, from 1977 to 1981, for example, interest rates up went up dramatically. And I can see on the firm I work for, which happened to be around back then. You know, it was a very profitable period for for this kind of trading. So, to me at least, it it looks to me that that when the bigger interest rate cycle is up, 
then I think there should be good opportunities. But when people refer to the period, as you mentioned, 1994, which was a difficult year for, for the CTA space, well, actually what it was, it was a correction in interest rates going up in a much bigger down move. So to me, it was more of a counter-trend situation than it was the fact that the interest rate cycle had turned. It hasn't really turned. It was just correcting against the bigger trend. Anyway, let that be for, for a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a pause to drink a little bit of tea because I want you to, I want to um, point out something that related to what you mentioned earlier, which was the, the importance of sticking to a plan. And I happened just to be sent uh, the other day a link to an article where AQRs, which for those who don't know, is one of the very big firms in, in our business. Um, the founder of AQR, Cliff Asnes, was recently interviewed by Bloomberg. And this is what he said about, um, you know, uh, investment, uh, you know, success and, 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 uh, and also in relation to, to, to Warren Buffett. He basically said that genius is still good. But more and more, I think about doing something reasonable that makes sense and then sticking to it with incredibly fortitude through the tough times. Maybe I middle that up a little bit in my reading of it. But basically what he's saying is sticking to a plan is possibly more important than just being a genius. Now, the other thing he goes on to say when uh, talking about sort of the quote unquote greatest investor in, in the world, Warren Buffett, um, he says that, and this is about a study that was done uh, about him, he said, of course they found he was fantastic, but not quite as fantastic. His track record was phenomenal, but human phenomenal. What was beyond human was him sticking, to, uh, sticking with it for 35 years and rarely, if ever, rarely retreating from it. So it goes very much to the point you made before. Now, of course, at this stage, uh, I have to do a little bit of selfish promotion, and that is to to uh, put things into perspective a little bit. And that is with my own, uh, the, the the founder of the firm I work for, Bill Dunn, who's essentially been running his investment strategy for 41 years with an annual return of more than 15%, which puts him, of course, along with uh, with our uh, new ownership of Marty Bergen, right up with with, uh, with Warren Buffett. Yet you will never hear these kind of rosy descriptions in in the media uh, of how they describe Buffett's uh, achievements. But anyway, that's a little bit of a of, of being sidetracked. But I just think the the sticking to a plan and being exceptionally disciplined over the long run. I, I think it's such an important point for people to to realize. Absolutely, and I'll just add. I mean, I think. I completely agree with Cliff to the extent that I don't think I am a genius and therefore sticking to a simple plan is, is absolutely the right thing for me to do. Mm. Now, let's talk a little bit about the difference between a subjective and an objective system and why objective systems in, in some ways um, uh, are better. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you mentioned it in, in, uh, in, in your book as well. Sure. Um, I'll probably start by telling you that often when I bump into people who know about trading, they'll say, oh, you you do technical analysis or are you a fundamentals trader? And I say, well, mainly I'm, I'm doing technical analysis because I'm using a, a system that just uses price data. Mm. Um, and then they, they kind of either 
get very excited and start talking to me about double bottoms and uh, horses' heads and golden crosses, <laughs> or they kind of back away and, and make the sign of the cross um, to ward off the evil, sure. depending on which camp they're in. So, um, you know, there's, there's kind of this assumption that the technical analysis is this uh, obscure, almost voodoo-like mm. profession where, you, you know, you kind of stare at lines on the, on the screen and, and then make a judgment as, as to what's going to happen. Mm. Um, now, all these um, kind of classic technical analysis um, methods, um, which I, I would describe as pattern matching. Okay. Because generally speaking, there's a, there's a pattern that you have in your head and you're looking to see that pattern and then you make a decision on that. To me, they're all extremely subjective. You know, gen- generally speaking, you know, you, you can't write an algorithm that will identify those patterns. Um, and if, if you try and do so, you usually won't end up with a system that, that is profitable in, in a backtest. So they're subjective. They're subjective systems. There's no rules you can write down. There's no computer program you can write to identify them. They're purely in the eye of the beholder. Um, now, there may well be, there probably are actually, um, people who, who can do this, who can look at charts and, 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 and see these patterns and make decisions and make money. But... Um, you know, that, that's not the world of systematic trading. Mm. Um, to be trading systematically, you need a purely objective way of, of identifying, given some data, you know, what your position should be. Um, and that means you, you can't use, um, you know, all these weird and wonderful patterns, but you can use things like moving average crossovers. Mm. You can use things like, um, you know, breakouts out of a range assuming that, you know, you can identify the range with a, with a purely uh, objective system. Mm. And now an objective system has a number of advantages. First of all, there's a kind of, if you need to make one assumption, which is that the future will be at least a bit like the past. Mm-hmm. If that's true, um, then you can backtest them. And then you, 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 if the future is like the past, then you will have a system that will definitely make money. There's that repeatability there. Mm. You can also um, analyze the properties of the system I mean, the risk properties, the, the leverage, how fast it trades, um, and, and use all these things in your system design, um, which you can't really do with a with a subjective um, system. So to me, at least, anyone who says that they're trading systematically, but then couldn't, in theory, at least, um, write a computer program that would essentially replace them, isn't really trading systematically, that they're, they're doing something different. Sure. And then, of course, there's the whole element of, of trust that you have to be able to trust your system. And you have a great quote in your book uh, where you say something like, a system which is fully automated but not completely trusted is potentially lethal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, there's been a few high-profile cases over the last few years of normally high-frequency uh, trading firms who've had a problem with their software or something unexpected has happened. Of course, they've then lost a lot of money very quickly mm. because that that's the, uh, the the problem with high frequency trading. You know, you you can get through, if you do something crazy like um, buy high and sell low, you know, a thousand times a second, you can get through a lot of money very quickly. Yeah, it's not just enough to you know if you've got a black box on your desk and and it's running and it's doing its thing, you need to be completely confident in in what it's doing. Otherwise. Anything, the moment it starts doing something that's slightly unexpected, you're immediately going to want to change it and, and meddle with it. Uh, and that's why I have a huge preference for systems that are as simple as possible. Mm. Um, because if a system is simple, you know, you, you'll know that given something's happened in the market today, it should be buying or selling. 
Mm. Um, and if it if it does that, then you you can kind of be relaxed. Very occasionally, some it won't, um, and you can, then you can investigate, and hopefully there'll be a valid reason for that. But um, you should have something that you know, ninety nine days out of a hundred, is doing exactly what you expect. And if you've got something that's very complicated, then you know it's got a lot of nonlinearity in it. Um, then that's much harder to do. Let's uh, shift gear a little bit and talk about the things you need to avoid when creating a trading system. Because this is actually something that I often meet when I sit down with investors because they they want to know how you as a systematic fund manager avoid these things. And the things I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the three no-nos that I that I, I, I think you, you wrote about and that is sort of overfitting, overtrading, overbetting uh, is kind of the buzzwords do you use um, Maybe you talk a little bit to each and why these are things you really do need to uh, to stay away from. Okay, so overfitting um, is a term most people are familiar with, although some people use the term curve fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the situation where you, you know, you're developing your trading system and you naturally want your trading system to look as good as possible. So you've, you've kind of um, got a couple of ways of achieving that. One way of achieving that is just to try lots of things until you find something that looks good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you might think, well, I'm going to try, I don't know, a moving average crossover and, and you, you put it in and it, it does okay. And you think, well, maybe it looks like um, there's certain situations which doesn't do so well. So now I'm going to add a kind of a, a layer to it and change it slightly so it does a bit better in those situations. And you, you iterate this a few times and you end up with something that's really good. Um, and the second way is a more quantitative way where you you um, you do that process, but essentially in an automated way. So you you do some kind of automated fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a number of parameters that describe how the trading system behaves. Um, and then you, you kind of search automatically for the combination of those parameters that produces the best performance. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really, you know, there's no real fundamental difference between two these two um, procedures. Sure. They're both incredibly stupid and dangerous. Um, it's just that one is probably slightly more respectable than the other. <laughs> so the, the, you know, the, there's a couple of motivations as to why people do this. One is, um, it, it seems harsh to call it greed, but but essentially it's a, a desire to have a higher um, backtest performance than is perhaps realistic. Right. And that might be because, you know, you, if you're working in an institution, they might say, well, you know, don't bother coming to me unless you've got a back test with a sharp of at least one. Mm. I mean, that might not be realistic depending on the combination of, of, of assets and, and the style of trading you're doing. Um, so, you, you know, you push and push until you get to that. The, the second reason is, I guess, comes down to overconfidence, which, you know, I think is the fundamental human flaw that affects most people. Most people think that, that they, you know, they should be able to get a, a good back test and they should be able to make uh, a lot more money than than is perhaps realistic. Mm. So for those two reasons, um, overfitting is, is, is rife. I mean, it's, it's really hard to, to get away from. Um, and uh, there, are, there are kind of three, three sort of ways of overfitting, mm-hmm. um, okay. if I can just go yeah. on a bit more. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, this, the first one is what I call explicit overfitting. So that's where you, you've actually got um, this setup where you've, you know, you've got parameters varying in some automated way. The other way, which is a bit more insidious, is implicit overfitting. 
and that's where you you know you're not doing a formal fitting process, but but you 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 at least once look at the results of your back test and then make some kind of change. And it might it might be something as simple as saying, well, I'm not going to run this system on the US ten year because that doesn't do as well as the US five year. Sure. And the third way of overfitting is what I call tacit overfitting. And that is where you only ever try things that you already know will work. Okay. Um, and there is absolutely no way to get away from this because, um, you know, you're not going to probably sit down at a computer and develop a trading system without having done some research or having or knowing something about the, the, the industry. Sure. Um, and what that means is, you know, if you, if you plonked me down in front of a computer tomorrow with a completely blank sheet and said, right, I want you to build a trading system, the first thing I would do instinctively is probably test some rules that were trend-following. Mm. I wouldn't test rules that weren't trend-following because, I, you know, that weren't kind of trend-following with a minus sign in front of them, if you like, <laughs> because I know, I know instinctively and already that they don't work. Sure. And that's a form of overfitting, even though I've done no... You know, I've, I've not even looked at an account curve. I, I've done no kind of statistical optimization. It's just coming sure. from inside my head. Sure. Um, so moving on to overtrading. Sure. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that. So overtrading, I think, is the, the the Cinderella of these three problems. It's the one that gets the least attention, and most people know about overfitting, and most people know about overbetting. But mm. um, I think relatively few people have a good handle on how fast their trading system is likely to trade mm-hmm. and what proportion of their likely performance is, is probably going to be eaten up by costs. Right. Um, and um, perhaps, you know, also I don't think many people have a realistic idea of how much it actually costs to trade. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, my commission's going to be whatever, $1 per lot, whatever it is. Um but, um, you know, obviously when you then go and execute, um, you're going to have to pay perhaps half the spread if you just cross the spread straight away or perhaps more or perhaps less, depending on how you, you know, you do your execution, how large your orders are. And that, that's that's harder to quantify. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm completely obsessed with, with trading costs. Um, and um, one reason for that is that they are a relatively stable and controllable thing to look at so you know there's not really a lot of point in getting excited about your day-to-day performance because that's essentially a random number mm. and you you hope over a long period of time that that will average a positive number sure um but so uh, you know your trading costs are um much less variable and you, you you can kind of analyze them with with relatively small amounts of data and say well am i paying too much am i paying too little and um you know this is an area that i think most people just don't even think about if I look at the number of people who are proposing that, that you should um, day trade, you know, trade um, multiple times per day sure. and do so with um, financial instruments that are relatively expensive, like um, spread bets or, you know, OTC FX, retail FX, mm-hmm. um, you know, that those I, I run the numbers and I can't make those systems work on, on a, a basis where you're trading multiple times per day because they are just so expensive to trade. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's only really with a few relatively cheap futures markets that, that I can, I can, um, I would be able to trade that quickly. Sure. So, um, you know, that, that's the second mistake that, sure. that I think is really endemic. Yeah. Um, the third mistake over betting is something that most people kind of know, uh, exists, <laughs> um, which is essentially just very simple taking on too much risk. Mm. So um, you know we can measure risk in many different ways, but I I use um, the 
expected average uh, annual standard deviation of returns. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you look at um, kind of the institutional CTA space, you know that number will be usually around fifteen to twenty, twenty five percent perhaps. Mm. Now, if you look at the trading systems in, in a lot of books or on websites or that people people claim to be running, you know that number can be in the hundreds of percent a year. <laughs> so they're they're running with with five, ten times as much risk as what. Um, you know, institutional managers were considered to be prudent. Mm. And, uh, you know, that that's clearly, to me at least, way too high. Sure. And the only way you can justify that is if you have extremely high expectations of what your returns will be. So, again, it all comes back to overconfidence. Sure, absolutely. Now, Rob, we've hit the one-hour mark. And um, I hope the listeners uh, are making lots of notes from what you're saying because it's it's very valuable but I just wanted to let everyone know that actually, right now, we've only covered chapter one of your book. So so that's 25 pages out of 300. So, you know, if we're going at this rate, we're going to have probably the another world record for you. And that's going to be the longest podcast episode ever produced. <laughs> so so uh, I'm sure we're going to have to, uh, and that's obviously my job, is now to focus on maybe some, some, some few headlines from the book. Because I also want to try and put it into the context um, of uh, some of the usual questions that we have. But but this is great stuff and, and, and uh, very, very interesting uh, indeed. Now, in chapter two, you go into more of the trading rules and what makes a good rule. And also, uh, you talk a little bit about the the sharp ratio, which you've already touched upon what's realistic and, and, and much, much more. So, so let's jump into some of these ideas. Um, I mean, you talked a little bit about it already, but when you come up with a trading rule, there's kind of two approaches, I guess. There's one you know, you come up with the idea first or you look at the data first. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and and what people should be be aware of in, 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 in this instance. Yeah, so I call these two approaches ideas first and data first. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of people assume that, that systematic traders all use data first. Um, so a classic data first approach would be if you used machine learning um, algorithm mm-hmm. where you you know you, you get a huge amount of data and you dump it into this algorithm and out magically comes the the trading rules that you should be using mm. the so that's one approach the second approach is ideas first and that would be where you, you have an idea and then you create a rule to sort of that sort of expresses that idea and you then back test that that rule uh, in in, the, in a similar way so these approaches are both kind of equally valid Mm-hmm. They have their advantages and their disadvantages. I personally prefer the ideas first. Right. Yeah. And that might be because of my background. So, you know, I have two degrees in economics. So I'm more used to thinking in, in terms of you know, how the world works and, um, and that there are these kind of underlying um, um, economic drivers, driving asset returns. And, you know, that that's kind of what we should be trying to capture. But um, also because I've seen more kind of misuse of the data first method um, and more kind of overfitting. Um, so, you know, you, you have to be careful about overfitting in, in both cases and it manifests itself slightly differently in, in each case. But mm. um, I, I've seen, I think people see data first as a kind of magic bullet. Um, and, you know, you get people coming along who say, well, I'm, I'm going to just use this uh, big data 
um, right. method, which is the buzzword now. Sure. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to discover something that no one else has discovered before, and will be incredibly profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I have a, a big problem with with that line of reasoning. I think it's um, you know it's possible, and, and there are firms that probably do use um, things like neural network, machine learning, big data successfully but it's it's probably much harder than than you think it is yeah yeah i like another quote that uh, you have uh, in your book or another sentence you have in your book and you say profitable trading comes out of careful research done by thoughtful and knowledgeable people who seek to understand where their profits come from and i think it goes to the point about the ideas first that you kind of have to know you know why why it does what it does so to speak Yeah, I mean, for me, that provides an extra layer of validation because, um, you, you know, <laughs> I like to know why I'm, I'm, a rule is profitable mm. um, because it gives me a more of a conviction that, 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 that it might be profitable in the future. Mm. Um, and also because um, it gives me an idea of what the risks might be around it. Um, you know, so what, what, you know, what, what, what's it exposed to? I mean, let's take an example, which is probably close to your, your heart, which sure. is the devaluation of the Swiss franc in, in January. Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it would have been very easy to have um, run a, a data first um, approach and and looked at the the, the you know the Euro Swissy uh, FX sure. rate sure. and said, oh, this thing always stays in this narrow corridor mm. between you know, 120 and 125 or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, you know, well, let's all we need to do is create a trading rule that essentially does a mean reversion between these two levels, and it will make a lot of money. Um, and uh, it would have made a lot of money, and then in, in about five minutes, it would have lost, you know, thousands of times its sure. uh, profits in one go. Sure. Um, whereas uh, an ideas first approach would be to say, okay, well, you know, I know that um, there are situations in which um, central banks, um, you know, want to keep their currency depressed. And therefore, um, you know, a carry rule should work because, um, you know, the classic, of course, being the the, the Japanese central bank for, for decades now has wanted to keep the yen as, as low as possible. So that's why funding in the yen and the carry trade is, is generally works. That's the reason why that trade works. Mm. Um, now, if the, 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 the Japanese central bank then turn around and say, well, we're not going to do this anymore, then you may well want to question whether you should carry on doing that rule. But The point is, at least you you can have that conversation. You understand what you're doing. Whereas, if you've just looked at some data and said, "Well, this thing goes up and down with regularity," let's just, without understanding the reason why, which is that the the Swiss central bank is desperately trying to keep the rate, mm. you know, from breaking that threshold. Sure. Um, and if you'd understood that, rather than just looking at the data first and going no further, then you know you hopefully would have realized that that doing this trade was an incredibly stupid thing to do. Sure. Uh, very true. Now, some people may have observed, and, and, and rightly so, that, that we live in a world of, of constant change. And they may wonder, you know, systems, how can they cope with sort of a, an ever-changing world? Can, can, you, can you explain that a little bit in, in your usual good educational manner then, then, so that people don't confuse systems with being something that is completely sort of static and, 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 and needs constant you know, change in order to adapt? How, how does sort of systematic trading uh, adapt? So a key question here is what kind of trading system do you have? So if you're running something that's trading very quickly, then you probably will and will want to have it adapting on a fairly regular basis. Right. 
And that's because, generally speaking, um, the, the kind of short-term behaviour of markets, what you, economists would call a market microstructure, is something that, that's changing you know, fairly, fairly constantly, mm. um, fairly quickly. So uh, a high-frequency trading rule that worked well a year ago may well not work anymore this sure, year. Sure. Um, now, the good news is because you're trading so quickly, you have an awful lot of data points that you can look at um, and you can actually look at six months of data and six months of data may be, you know, terabytes or petabytes of data that you yeah. can, can analyze and come up with a, you know, the new kind of pattern or system that's, that's in the market. Sure. Um, now, at the other end of the spectrum is the kind of trading that I do where we're assen I'm essentially trying to pick up on what I think are mainly human behaviors that I that probably haven't changed for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. And in that situation, you probably aren't going to want to ever change your system um, unless you have to. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to, going to want as much data as you can to fit your system. So I'll go back to, to Winton, uh, which is a big CTA. I, I think actually the biggest CTA still. Sure. We've tried to get hundreds of years of data um, to to sort of fit or at least to validate that their systems worked. Mm. The, the, so it depends where you are on those two extremes. So one, one view is to say, yes, the world is changing, but if my trading system is a relatively fast trading system, then I can and should adapt it to cope with that change. Yeah? Yeah. And the other extreme is to say, yes, the world is changing, but there are certain things about the world that I believe will, will not change or at least will change incredibly slowly, and therefore I do not need to adapt my system. So it's a question of where your trading system sits on on that continuum, mm. and then you should you should act appropriately. So, um, you know, if you appropriately means, for example, if you have got a system that, that's trading relatively slowly, you probably shouldn't be trying to adapt it every single year to the the new you know the new world that exists, right? Because you don't have enough data to actually tell you statistically that the world appears to have changed. Um, you know, you, you should be using 30 years of data at least if you can. If you're using 31 instead of 30, <laughs> it's not really going to change the, the parameters that are coming out of your, your fitting process very much at all. Sure. Now, I have a question that, I mean, in a sense, I, I, I sense from you that, that, I mean, you have a lot of experience in sort of the, the, the trend following and, and, and you seem sort of to to uh, have a certainly uh, um, a liking for for trend following amongst other things but you also talk about trend following and 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 lottery tickets and in both cases you know there 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 are small losses awaiting uh, but there are some few much much bigger winners now we as human beings we we love to play the lottery <laughs> but i found very few investors in in my 25 year career that uses the word love in the same sentence as trend following <laughs> so do, do you have an explanation as to why that is when when these two things have something in common yet they seem to be received very differently um it, yes it is an interesting problem because you're right people have a strong preference for trading systems that that um, generally make money every month, yeah. uh, but every now and then lose lose a lot of money, mm. which is the exact opposite to trend following. Um, and I think I can. I have a lot of um, a lot a lot of emotional kind of uh, bonding with these people. I, I feel like you know I really understand their pain because sure. um, I, one you know when I look at the returns to my own system, inevitably if I'm in a, a drawdown, I feel more unhappy than if. If it's doing well, sure. Um, and if I've had a, a day when I've lost money, 
even though I know from an intellectual perspective that this is just a random number you know, yeah. drawn from some unknown distribution of returns that I hope has a positive mean. Um, you know, when I have a down day, I, I feel slightly less happy than if I have an up day. And if I if I had an up day every day for six months, then I'd be much happier. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I have a lot of sympathy for, for that point of view. Um, I think the the, re- the sort of reason for the dichotomy between um, this emotional response and the emotional response to buying lottery tickets is to do with the, 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 the size of the pain and the size of the payoff. Right. So... Um, you know, if you've invested all of your money into a into a trend following fund, um, and um, you know you, you you lose money for two thirds, let's take an extreme example. You know, two two out of every three days you're losing money. Right. You could be losing, you know, maybe half a percent of your net worth two out of three days. Sure. Um, whereas n- no one's probably going to buy that many lottery tickets. Um, <laughs> if I was to buy enough lottery tickets that would represent half a percent of my net worth, that would be sure. you know, quite a few lottery tickets. <laughs> Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.